Almost exactly 150 years ago today, sitting right where we are, we might very well have heard the roar of cannon to our east. The fate of Richmond and Richmonders lay in the balance of the seven days battles. The Richmond National Battlefield Park this year is marking the sesquicentennial of the seven days with an impressive array of events. And I was delighted when Superintendent Dave Ruth approached us about co-sponsoring with the VHS uh, this evening's lecture and won by Gary Gallagher on July 11th. So please join me in welcoming to the stage Dave Ruth. Thank you, everyone, and, and uh, thanks for being here this evening. Um, more than a year ago, my staff and I began plotting ways to commemorate the 150th anniversary of these seven days. And this is an extremely important charge because so often the seven days campaign is overshadowed by the events that happened before and after, if not overlooked entirely. Yet, it was one of the watershed episodes of the entire Civil War. It was clear to all of us that to give the incredibly important segment of Civil War history its due, we needed to develop a series of lectures, special programs, battlefield tours to bring out the meaning and the legacy of what happened in Virginia during June and July 1862. Tonight, we're going to begin that anniversary commemoration with a lecture by one of the nation's leading Civil War historians, Dr. Ed Ayers, that I know many of you are familiar with and know intimately. We feel that there was no one better suited to talk about the high stakes that confronted the nation 150 years ago. On July 11th, we will conclude the seven days commemoration by a lecture in the same location by another of Virginia's great historians, Dr. Gary Gallagher. Dr. Gallagher's talk is entitled, More Important Than Gettysburg, The Seven Days Campaign as a Turning Point. For those of you who know Civil War history as an author, if you put Gettysburg in the title, you're guaranteed to sell three times the number of books. But this is no ploy because Dr. Gallagher firmly is convinced and believes and will tell you so that, in fact, the Seven Days Campaign in 1862 was more important than what happened in Pennsylvania a year later. And sandwiched in between these two programs are scores of special tours and events that are highlighted in a visitor guide that each of you are required to take home with you when you leave this evening. And you probably got some of these. Beth Stern, our wonderful chief of interpretation, is out there somewhere and has just been distributing them already, and there'll be more outside on the table. I want to thank Paul Levengood and Virginia Historical Society for hosting us tonight. And now I would like to welcome Cheryl Magazine, the Sunday editor of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, who will introduce our special speaker this evening. Cheryl? Thank you, Dave. Um, as Sunday editor of the Times-Dispatch, and my special assignment is Civil War editor, I'm very glad to be here tonight on behalf of the Richmond Times-Dispatch to introduce tonight's program. In the spring of 1862, Virginia's civilians faced a different kind of war than the one they had faced a year before. Advancing Union armies now occupied large amounts of territory in West Virginia and in Tidewater, and their presence had a dramatic effect on local populations. Pro-Confederate white Virginians became refugees as they left their homes. 
and enslaved Virginians began to flee to the safety of Union lines. Tonight's speaker will analyze the impact of the Civil War on Virginia's civilians up through the first half of 1862. Edward L. Ayers is president of the University of Richmond and the author and editor of 11 books, including America's War, Talking About the Civil War and Emancipation on Their 150th Anniversaries, The Crucible of the Civil War, Virginia from Secession to Commemoration, and In the Presence of Mine Enemies, The Civil War in the Heart of America, 1859 to 1863. In addition to his administrative responsibilities and scholarly pursuits, Dr. Ayers also remains active as a teacher. For his outstanding work in the classroom, he was named the 2003 National Professor of the Year for Research in Doctoral Universities by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and the Council for Support and Achievement of Education. Support and Advancement of Education, sorry about that. He also received an outstanding faculty award from the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia in 1991 and was named the 2002 recipient of the James Harvey Robinson Prize for Outstanding Aid to Teaching History by the American Historical Association. And most important of all, Ed is a great friend and generous supporter of the Virginia Historical Society, where he currently serves as a member of its Board of Trustees. Please join me in welcoming Ed Ayers, who will speak to us this evening about the Civil War at a Crossroads, the Seven Days. Good afternoon, everybody. It's great to see you. Gosh, there's a lot of people interested in this Civil War thing. I guess I've, I better try to do the very best job that I can. Now, now the Seven Days Battles of 1862 might really be called the six months battles because the campaign that culminated at Malvern Hill actually stretched from January into July, unfolding almost in slow motion, it seems. As a result, it reflected and shaped virtually everything that was going on in America during the Civil War era, especially during its first and in many ways most terrible year of 1862. Now today's lecture, uh, no matter how long it may seem, is not meant to drag on quite as long as, as the events it describes, <laughs> but it is going to try to take advantage of the struggles all around where we are right now to try to understand the Civil War in some larger terms. Now our allies at the National Park Service do a remarkable job of interpreting the battlefield sites all around us, and I'm glad you have the mandatory take home there. And there's nothing like seeing the places firsthand. One of the things I hope that this little talk will do would be to say, you know, that can't be what happened. I'm gonna go visit those sites myself and see what the real story was. And there are undiscovered gems all around us. I bet, how many people have been to every battlefield listed in your handout? Yeah. You're as big as nerds as I am. I'm glad to see you all. But for the rest of you, there's exciting things to see and do out there. Now, I know that some of you are quite expert in the military history of this place and time, and I hope you will be interested in seeing some of the broader picture and, and that you will come back and hear what I know will be a brilliant lecture by my good friend Gary Gallagher. Uh, you'll, you'll hear that at the end, our lectures touch 
I don't know if we're in conflict or in uh, agreement, but you'll want to come and find out, so you want to come back. You might want to leave a little bit earlier uh, to get a parking space, uh, I would recommend. Now, another, others of you, in contrast, may be here out of a sense of spousal duty uh, or maybe a loyalty to the VHS, which is an entirely good thing. And for you, I'm trying to suggest that even the Civil War can be interesting. I know some of people find that hard to imagine, that if there's anything left to say about it that hasn't been said before, um, and that it still speaks to us today. I'm going to see if I can't make that be the case. So part of the strategy today is to look at the war from different scales. We'll pull the camera way back sometimes. Other times, we'll be zooming it right in on individuals. Sometimes, we'll be talking about places very near where we are. Other times, places at some distance. So let's begin by setting the scene on the landscape where the Peninsula Campaign, the larger context of the Seven Days Battle, which culminated that campaign, would unfold. Not surprising, that is the peninsula um, that extends from here down between the York and the James to the Atlantic. Now the peninsula, the site of the first English settlement and the first great plantations of Virginia had long passed its peak. The worn out land was not worth much and much of it was occupied by tenant farmers. When United States soldiers came down here, it confirmed every stereotype they had about what the South was like about how it was filled with no-count people who were just laying around. And they wrote all these letters back to New England or Ohio or Michigan describing what a miserable place Virginia was. Many of the old families had sold their land and moved to the south and to the west. And despite the steady sale of enslaved people, in 1860 the peninsula was still predominantly African-American. 14,000 slaves, 3,000 free blacks, 12,000 whites. So you have to imagine the landscape. We all know what the landscape is like. We know that would have been a hard area to, in the days before paving uh, and uh, drainage, to have marched an army. And people came down here, and the, the soldiers wrote home that they were trapped in malarial swamps and were really worried very much about their health, which they should have been. Now, it turns out that about 11% of all of Virginia's free blacks lived on the peninsula, many of them working as pilots on the river and oystermen and fishermen, and also many specialized in ditching and terracing, which was considered work unfit for white people, and that skill would prove to be quite important. As in Richmond, many of the enslaved people on the peninsula were hired out by their owners to other people. Here in the city, about 48% of all the working men would have been men of color. Some of them free, some of them hired out, some of them working for their owners. On this landscape, a small but pivotal event occurred a full year before Union General George McClellan decided to move his vast army from northern Virginia to Hampton and Fort Monroe to take Richmond by coming up the peninsula. On May 22, 1861, General Ben Butler took command of Fort Monroe. The next day, Virginia voters ratified the Ordinance of Secession. And Butler sent a reconnoitering mission into the largely abandoned town of Hampton to see what they might find. A new and excellent book by Glenn Brasher tells the story. Quote, Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory, three slaves who had worked on the Confederate fortifications, noticed how friendly the Vermonters had been to the blacks and decided the Union Army was too close not to make a run for it. 
During the day, they slipped into the woods and used their laying out skills to wait until the cover of darkness. As night fell, they sat out on the bay in a small skiff and pedaled as quietly as possible. They had no way of knowing for sure how they would be received, but they boldly presented themselves to the federal picket guards and no doubt prayed their gamble would pay off. The soldiers offered shuttle for the night, but explained that in the morning they would have to present them to General Butler. The next day, Major John B. Carey of the Confederate Army and of Carey Street came to see Butler and demanded the return of the slaves. Butler said he intended to retain the slaves. Do you mean then, Carey asked, to set aside your constitutional obligation to return slaves? I mean to abide by the decision of Virginia as expressed in ordinance of secession, Butler said. I am under no constitutional obligation to a foreign country, which Virginia now claims to be. <laughs> if the owner of the slaves wished to come to the fort and take the oath of allegiance to the United States, he would gladly return the slaves. So this is May of 62. You'll notice that Virginia had seceded in April and then, had, and then had ratified this in May. So no sooner has Virginia left the United States than slavery begins to unravel the next day. Since the enslaved men had been used to build fortifications, Butler reasoned they could be confiscated under the rules of war that allowed the seizure of property that aided an enemy's war efforts. In other words, they would be contraband of war. Two days later, eight more arrived. The next day, 59 arrived, arriving from all over the Virginia Peninsula in canoes on homemade rafts and hauled out logs, Brasher has written. The escapees floated down streams into either the York River or the James River and arrived in groups of 20, 30s, and 40s. So within a week, it's not just the three men, but large groups of people coming down to the peninsula to see what they might find. On May 27th, Butler already reported that he was overwhelmed with entire families. When the people he had welcomed in had been building fortifications, they were obviously contraband. But as a child, contraband. What are you supposed to do with all of these? Postmaster General Montgomery Blair, who had grown up among enslaved people in Kentucky, observed in the cabinet in Washington, I have no doubt that you can get your best spies from among them because they are accustomed to travel in the nighttime and can go where no one, not accustomed to the sly tricks they practice from infancy to old age, could penetrate. This became very good advice. Butler began to look to the enslaved people as his best spies. By May 30th, the president's cabinet met in Washington and discussed these tough issues. They decided to permit Butler to proceed as he had begun, but they did not make a larger policy. It would depend on what happened here. The fate of the Civil War and of slavery in this country would depend not just on the decision of Butler, but on the events that are getting ready to unfold. For their, port, their part, the fugitive slaves faced tough choices. This was not an automatic decision. Who among the whites was really their friends? They had grown up among white people, and some of them said that they loved them, called them aunt and uncle and mammy. Were those their friends? Or was it these strangers who talked funny, 
but who their owners had said were abolitionists. Their owners had been the one who'd spread the words that they're coming down here to end slavery. And so the enslaved people said, let's see if that might not be true. But there's a great risk. That was a great risk. Who's going to win? What if they do this and the Confederates win, which seems highly likely given on what's happened so far in the war? If they gambled on the Yankees and lost, they risked everything. And what if the Yankees were as evil as, as their masters had told them? What if the Yankees were just going to use them and then sell them to Cuba, which, which was one of the most prominent rumors? Who knew what the Yankees were going to do? Even the Yankees themselves did not know. Frankly, not much happened in the war between the Battle of Manassas in the summer of 1861 and the early 1862. Both armies desperately prepared for battles of the spring, and both governments desperately tried to find the right policies to unify and sustain their people. Looking back on it, we talk about the North and the South, but they spent a lot of their energy, including here in Richmond, and I love all the articles from the Civil War era and the Times-Dispatch every day. I see what's happening on the front page, maybe glance at the sports page for a second to see if the spiders are playing, and then I read that part about <laughs> the Civil War. And even though I've studied this now for a long time, I'm always surprised and pleased to see the fresh view on it. So lower left-hand corner, page two, you need to read it every day. The population in the North and the South could only wait and guess what might happen. In the meantime, they wrote and read acres of newspapers. The Confederacy occupied itself with imagining just how discouraged the North must feel on January 1st. With an empty treasury, a ruined credit, an enormous public debt, and heavy taxation. Things were tough back then. I'm glad we don't have these problems now. <laughs> it is impossible for her to maintain hostilities of such gigantic proportions as those which the war has now assumed. The Northern volunteers are not fighting from patriotism or for defense, but for pay. And when they cease to get that, they will cease to be soldiers. When the Yankee treasury had grown empty, the Grand Army will melt away like the morning mist, and disorganization and mutiny will be the day. So white Southerners looked at this, and I, they said, we know that hundreds of thousands have signed up to fight, but they are hirelings. They cannot be motivated possibly by the same patriotic motives as we are. The South was sure the North would soon be torn by class warfare. Quote, it is an ugly fix. The time is approaching when the Lincolnite dynasty will be at a loss to know which most to fear, the armies of the South or the armies of the North. The working people, the Irish, the Germans, they thought for sure are going to turn against the Lincolnite dynasty. It will be easier to run from one than to get rid of the other. But here was the problem. The Lincolnite dynasty could not quit until it had at least one victory. They could not just admit that they were overmatched by the Confederates. They could not admit that they could not possibly hope to conquer a people spread over an area the size of continental Europe. They could not possibly hope to conquer the fourth richest economy in the world. But they were going to have to at least make a show of it. It must have something to show for the blood it has spilt and the money it has squandered. Therefore, we look for more bloody work and more grand movements upon the southern rebels ere the fight closes. 
So the Confederacy is saying, bring it on. We whipped you at Manassas, and we'll whip you again. There's no way that you can defeat us. The North, for its part, had to admit there was some truth to this. It is undeniable that every move our army has made has been a blunder. Our naval expeditions proved failures, and our battles resulted in defeats. Can any man say that this wicked rebellion is any nearer being crushed out today than nine months ago, although millions upon millions of dollars have been expended and thousands of valuable lives lost to the unnatural conflict? The answer in January 1862 had to be no. Even the Republican Party was distraught over the course of the war. The most frustrating event or lack of event was the failure of General George McClellan, now in control of the federal forces in the east, to advance toward Richmond. Everybody knew this was the center of the universe, then as now. <laughs> that the big phrase, of course, was on to Richmond. You, they had to take the capital. It was so close. It looked so vulnerable. How could they not take it? He had a vast army in Virginia. Why did he refuse to move? Quote, if our army is not now ready to strike the enemy, when will it be? It has been undergoing organization and discipline for the last six months, and nothing has been withheld in the shape of munitions and equipment to render it invincible that an extravagant expenditure of money could secure. We've put everything to McClellan's army, all for the purpose of taking Richmond and bringing this war to an end. So while tens of thousands of men flowed into the army, the Lincoln administration tried to hold the issue of slavery at bay. One Republican faction, the radicals, wanted to use the war to destroy slavery by confiscating the property of the rebels. The Senate invited leading abolitionists who 18 months before had been outcasts. Nobody wanted to hear the fanatics before. But now the United States Senate is coming in and talk to us about what might it mean to end slavery in America. Anti-slavery bills proliferated, coming before committees run by New Englanders eager to promote abolitionism. Another faction, however, the conservatives, wanted to follow a much more cautious course. They wanted to allow slavery to die slowly by the actions of the slave states themselves, accompanied by colonization to Africa or Latin America. They were in no hurry. Lincoln tried to steer between the left and the right. And meanwhile, on the far right, the 45% of white northern men who had not voted for Lincoln at all, who detested any discussion of anything that had to do with ending slavery. We are tired of hearing about the Negro, they said. This is not about them. This is not about that. And if you turn it into that, we are not on your side. So early 1862 is the context in which the, the setting for the seven days is beginning. Northern Democrats said the abolitionists, quote, have been instrumental in plunging the country into war, and now they are doing everything in their power to prolong it and to add to its horrors. They're saying they want to drag the war out so that it will become a war against slavery. We, the good Democrats, want to drive it to an end, take Richmond, put the country back together in, again, just as it is. The Constitution guarantees slavery. We want it back that way. That's why the South thinks the North may tear itself apart. These are very real, very powerful kinds of fights. Abolitionists, the Democrats charge, 
would rather let every foot of the country be drenched in fraternal blood than concede one iota of their miserable idiosyncrasies. These are the men of the same stamp as the New England Puritans who killed the Indians and hung the Quakers and drove out the Baptists and drowned women for witches, all in the name of religion. Have we the evidence that the, this species of fanaticism is rampant among us? We think we have. So that's how the Northern Democrats see the Republicans. Republicans say, calm down. We are for the preservation of our Constitution. And if slavery stands in the way of preserving that, then we'll strike down slavery. But otherwise, we're not. This war is to put the Union back together. So as McClellan decides that he's not going to be able to take Richmond from the North, and he's going to take advantage of the credible resources he has to bring his army down by water to the peninsula, take advantage of Fort Monroe, and then come up the peninsula. The political situation, the, the purpose of the war is profoundly unsettled. Lincoln's trying in early 1862 to be sure to keep Kentucky and Maryland, Missouri in the Union, slave states, and perhaps entice back some states that had left. Lincoln wanted the end of slavery to come slowly. Quote, he says, For in my judgment, gradual and not sudden emancipation is better for all. Lincoln said, If you would just look how much money we're spending on the war, we could compensate the slaveholders for the slaves. But by this time, the war was out of anybody's control. It had a momentum that wars attain. And at this point, Lincoln still says, should slavery's end come, it must be accompanied by colonization. Could black people possibly forgive the white people who've held them in bondage for 200 years? Can black people and white people possibly live together? Things finally began to go well for the United States on the rivers and oceans and battlefields in February and March of 1862. The so-called Anaconda Plan, which was going to squeeze the South by taking the Mississippi and taking advantage of the northern uh, superiority on the oceans, sealing off the Atlantic and Gulf ports, seemed to be working. The United States Army took Nashville and much of Tennessee, controlling all the area of Kentucky and most of Tennessee. The Union had already dealt a huge blow to the Confederacy, taking out a very rich and even an area with industrial capacity. Richmond's the central of that, but losing Nashville and losing all those other resources along the Tennessee River was a huge blow. A, a leading Confederate official at the time called it the great mistake of the war to have sacrificed this already. So while people have been talking about going on to Richmond, Grant and, and Sherman and others had managed to take a huge swath of the West the horror of Shiloh in early, early 1862 revealed just how terrible the war was becoming. In the days of chaotic fighting and mistakes and terror, nearly 24,000 men were killed, wounded, or declared missing. The Confederacy lost one of her best generals and control over vast territory. The United States Army was bitterly criticized for incompetence, and everybody knew that this Ulysses Grant guy was never going to amount to anything. The Confederacy put the best faces in the losses of the winter and early spring of 1862. We are not disposed to take a gloomy view of the seemingly s sad reverses with which our forces have recently met. 
We do not feel discouraged by them. On the contrary, <laughs> we believe that they will eventually result in good to the cause of the South. These reverses are but the thunderclaps which were necessary to arouse the giant of Southern energy from its false repose. For an example of that, they all had to do was look at Manassas. After the North loses there, then the North did arise, a far larger giant. And men who had been sitting on the sidelines waiting for that one battle that was going to be the war to come and go decided they would support the North. Now the South says, this is what we needed to rally us. The news of these reverses falls upon the ears of the brave and patriotic like the sound of the trumpet calling to arms. The most important setback, effect of the setback that Confederate patriots hoped would be to spur enlistment and re-enlistment. After all, the year-long enlistments of the, year, of the first year volunteers would soon expire. The patriots of the secession spring, who were also expecting a one-battle war, would have fulfilled their obligation and could look forward to others taking their places on the battlefield. So the Confederate Congress decides that it has no choice but to institute the first draft in American history. In April 1862, that body decreed that all healthy white men between 18 and 35 years of age were liable for three years of service. Those who had volunteered a year before for a one-year term would be required to serve two more years. The Confederate Army did not want to draft men. It hoped the law would encourage men to enlist on their own rather than to suffer the shame of being a draftee and a conscript and of being sent to whatever unit they decided to. Now, people made fun of those men who tried to get out of serving. The Confederacy exempted men with disabilities, and one newspaper worried in mock alarm that the draft law had created more disabilities than any disaster that had ever descended on Virginia. <laughs> on the day after the draft took effect, a, a countless host of disabled men were evoked from the bosom of the state, said one newspaper. And it was made manifest that our good old mother had a vast number of weak, enfeebled, diseased, crippled, deformed, and sickly children, many shaky in the knees, weak in the back, and faint-hearted. The paper suggested that if the governor would just publish the list of the Virginia men that, who had been exempted by disability, the federal troops would flee a land so filled with disability. It would be like coming into a city with a plague, they said. So nothing is settled. In the North, the fate of slavery is settled. In the South, military reverses, but also they're already having to turn to a draft pretty early. So this is not what they expected in the spring of 61 when they were going out and bring this war to an end. It seemed to be turned into something altogether different. In fact, the spring of 1862 sees the highest rates of desertion that we're going to see in the Confederacy until the very end of the war. Springtime. There's crops to be put in the ground. Battles are most assuredly building. There's squabbles over enlistment and re-enlistment in the air. I can't believe I signed up for a year. Now they're going to make me stay again. I get letters from home, and my children are growing up, and there's other guys sitting there claiming they have a bad back or whatever, and they're, I'm, I'm here suffering. I've already done my bit. These are kind of fights inside the ranks. And... People said, I think I'll just go home. And as it turned out, some of them came back. And then once they were sort of tried in the battles that we're getting ready to talk about, they tended to stay throughout the rest of the war. 
They also worried about what they call croakers, quote, the long-faced men of faint hearts and weak nerves who go up and down the country seeking to impart their own despondency and cowardice to all with whom they come into contact. We would suggest to have petticoats put upon these miserable creatures and curls hung about their craven foreheads, but for the insult we should thereby offer to our brave women. So, <laughs> so you, again, we have a kind of a very idealized view of Civil War America. Uh, both sides are people behaving just like we would in this time and just like we do. In May 1862, however, suddenly something good happens. Stonewall Jackson brings sudden hope to the Confederate cause with everyone focused on Richmond or thinking back about Shiloh. In his audacious Valley campaign, Jackson and his men make the Federals look foolish. His attacks in the valleys force the Federals to dispatch troops to the West that could have been used for, by McClellan to take Richmond. But even without those men, the United States Army under George McClellan had been massing for what Northerners felt certain would be the final campaign of the war. Throughout April and May, elaborate preparations and tentative movements preceded. McClellan commanded 105,000 men outside of Richmond and gathered vast resources for war. Now this brings us back to the peninsula. As Brasher reminds us, Civil War era field fortifications required extensive and skilled labor to excavate the earth, create the parapet and embankments, provide for drainage and construct the platforms and slopes and powder magazines. Directed by the state's engineers, several hundred slaves and free blacks were laboring on the works around Norfolk and the Lower Peninsula. In stifling humidity, also a big change from now and then. Back then it was humid in Virginia. The men were constantly digging, cutting, clearing, and lifting logs and stones into place. Often they were required to work in water and mud up to their waist. Rations were inadequate, consisting of rice in the morning and little more than a pint of meal at night. The Confederate officer in charge of building these fortifications covered all the counties around here and the city of Richmond. He got into trouble by going to Chesterfield County, however which was not in his territory. And the slave owners complained to Jefferson Davis that they were not to be forced to give up their slaves. So all free blacks between 18 and 50 here in the city had to register. And any time that they needed more hands to work on the fortifications, they could come and take people off that list of names. As McClellan confronted the labyrinth of rifle pits and forts and batteries. A northern paper pointed out, quote, it was the sweat and the muscle and the blood of the black man that rendered these breastworks. Now I have to say, this is something that I've learned recently or recently thought about. This book by a former ranger here, uh, Glenn Brasher, points out that what we now sort of take for granted, of course these breastworks, think of the immense labor in the days before any kind of machinery to build those. As we'll see, they play a central role in the war. The control of the Chesapeake Bay and the James and Rock Rivers would be crucial. And here, too, African-Americans played key roles. A black woman, Mary Lou Vest, carried key information about the CSS Virginia to the Secretary of Navy up in Washington. A letter from a Union engineer who had used spy networks to find out all about the construction of the, the ironclad 
She made it all the way to Washington. And as a result, the Union had a good idea that the monitor, monitor could withstand whatever the Virginia threw at it. They knew, too, that the Confederate ship could not venture outside the Chesapeake Bay because of its heavy armor. And after the war, Louvest received a federal pension with the Secretary of the Navy writing that, quote, I'm aware of none more meritorious than this poor colored woman whose zeal and fidelity I remember and acknowledge with gratitude. On the Confederate side, too, black labor played a critical role on the James. From March to May 1862, approximately 250 slaves from King George and Henrico and Hanover and James City and Charles City and Surrey and Prince George and Frederick and Nottoway counties toiled alongside white troops at Drury's Bluff. If that's a place you've not been to, you really must go check that out. In deep mud and constant rain, the laborers hauled planks and constructed cribs and dug the works and assisted in the mounting of the giant guns. And to obstruct the river, workers filled the water with logs and stones and iron, drove piles into the river bottom, sank boats to stop the ships from coming up. Because a very likely scenario, if they fail, Richmond would be taken by water. That the enormous naval superiority of the Union Navy would shell the city from the James, that the river that gave it its life would become its death. It was increasingly clear to both sides that control over black labor would be central to the outcome of the defense of Richmond and thus to the outcome of the war itself. If McClellan took the Confederate capital, after all the other United States successes elsewhere, the military necessity argument for ending slavery became much less compelling. Because people, what people were arguing is, look at these fortifications. Our men are having to go up against fortifications that slave men are building. If they were on our side, things would be different. So emancipation suddenly faced the specter of the war ending with slavery intact. Some whites in the North charged that the abolitionists and the radicals were actually wanting McClellan to lose. McClellan himself had suspicions of this. Why would they not send him all the men that he needed? Why are they quaking there in Washington that Stonewall Jackson is going to come take them? If they would just give me those last tens of thousands that I soldiers that I need, I would have all the pieces to bring this war to an end. And McClellan deeply hopes bring it to an end before slavery is damaged. Because McClellan believes that you're going to have to have the white South buy into any peace, and the white South is not going to buy into any peace that involves emancipation. For many reasons then, as one diarist noted, the nation is breathless with anxiety to hear the story which Richmond is soon to tell. That's all we have time for today. <laughs> Now, here are the outlines of the story of the battles themselves. I don't want to give away too much, uh, but uh, the outlines themselves are gripping enough. After the incredible battle of the ironclads in Hampton Roads in March, in which the Virginia and the Monitor are going against each other, after months of fighting and skirmishing as McClellan moves up the peninsula in April, after the Confederates drop back from Yorktown, to the better fortifications 
of Richmond, after the CSS Virginia is burned by the Confederates to prevent its capture, and after the Monitor runs into the obstacles at Drury's Bluff and is shelled for over three hours and then is forced to turn back, after McClellan establishes a new base at White House Landing on the east and north of Richmond and establishes a new base south of the Chickahominy River, he's getting everything exactly in line to take the city. He's going to have his own rail line coming from White House Landing that's going to feed this enormous war machine. And after Confederate General jo Joseph Johnston orders his divisions to concentrate in front of Richmond, then the fighting around Richmond begins. The Battle of Seven Pines, also called Fair Oaks, finally breaks the tension on May 31st and June 1st. In just those two days, the two armies suffer 11,000 casualties. The most significant of these is the wounding and subsequent death of Joseph Johnson, considered perhaps the Confederacy's best general. President Jefferson Davis then looks around, he says, I guess I'll have to appoint this Robert E. Lee guy, even though people have serious reservations about his ability to lead troops in battle. He's been on the desk job there in Richmond up to this point. Lee then spends three weeks preparing to take on McClellan, who seems in no hurry to take advantage of this dislocation in the Confederate leadership. And at the end of June, the two armies finally go head-to-head -head in furious fighting in what would become known as the Seven Days. Lee takes the initiative, striking at the United States Army at Mechanicsville on June 26th, at Gaines Mill on the 27th, at Savage's Station on the 29th, at Glendale on the 30th, and at Malvern Hill on July 1st. These battles trace a semicircle to the northeast of the city from today's Mechanicsville Turnpike 360 down to Route 5, as you picture the, the, the scope of all of that. Here are a couple of glimpses of what that looked like from Richmond. Sarah Pryor, a general's wife in Richmond. Each of the battles of those seven days brought a harvest of wounded to our hospital. I used to veil myself closely as I walked to and from my hotel that I might shut out the dreadful sights in the streets, the squads of prisoners, and worst of all, the open wagons in which the dead were piled. Once I did see one of these dreadful wagons, in it a stiff arm was raised and shook as it was driven down the street as though the dead owner appealed to heaven for vengeance. Here's Elizabeth Van Loo. Tents were put up in the streets and in the hillsides in the thickly settled parts of the city. In these were put most of the patients suffering from gangrene and some who had been considered hopeless cases. The largest and finest stores on Main Street were used as hospitals and filled with rooms of cots and beds in which were lying the poor wounded men. The weather was very warm, the doors were open, and no curtain or screen shielded them from the gaze of the passers-by. So sickeningly fetid was the atmosphere that we could not sit in our garden up on Church Hill. Now it's useful to see the story as people at the time who were not in Richmond could have experienced it as it dribbled in through patchy reports. Dispatches received by the telegraph operator here say that a battle began yesterday about noon at Richmond 
One Confederate in the Shenandoah Valley recorded in his diary, at, at least 100,000 men are arrayed on each side. What multitudes are now passing into eternity? And how many men more at this moment are writhing in pain on the bloody ground? As the telegraph dispatches continued to pour in over the next several days, the people in the valley could hear the cannonading over the hundred miles and the towering Blue Ridge that separated them from our city. The messages on the telegraph reported that the enemy had been pushed back, but they also reported heavy losses to the Confederacy. There was no telling how things might turn out. Day after day, the cannons rumbled in the distance. Day after day, for a week, the reports arrived tangled and contradictory. Some had the Union army entirely surrounded and captured, while others had the Union forces escaping. Unlike the valley, the land there was broken and confusing, and so was Confederate strategy. Stonewall Jackson, the pride of the valley, stumbled and seemed perpetually late, only two weeks after the glory that was the valley campaign. The Union met Southern strength with strength, leading to horrific losses but no decisive victories. Only garbled word of the battles of what became known as the Seven Days reached the valley. I am certain only of this, that the enemy had been repulsed, losing several thousand men and killed, wounded, and prisoners, and some cannon, etc., and that our loss is also heavy. He decided the next day that he would believe the report that McClellan had at last reached a position on the James River where his transports and guns, gunboats are, his columns a good deal shattered, but not seriously reduced in numbers. And indeed, McClellan was making his way to the James. But this diarist did not know that his neighbors had been the targets for much of the cannonading. Men from the 5th and the 52nd and the Stanton Artillery had all been engaged at Malvern Hill, one of the few places the Federal Army had dominated in seven days. As you'll see when you go, Malvern Hill was not really a hill, but a long plateau over a mile long and three-quarters of a mile across, gradually rising at just the right elevation for cannon to fire down. The Confederates tried to blast the Union cannon out of position, but were annihilated themselves before they could unlimber their guns. Southern artillerymen shattered and were beheaded by the shells screaming in on them. Lee tried an assault of infantry up the hill, but the northern guns ripped them apart. By the end of the day, the Confederates had suffered over 5,000 men killed and wounded, twice as many as the North lost. That night, rain fell on the rebels strewn across the open ground, parts of their bodies often yards away, severed by some of the heaviest and most effective artillery the war would ever seen. The reports from the field were horrifying. I suppose you have heard all about the fighting in the papers better than I can tell you, at least beat all the fights I've ever was in. I could stand in place and count 50 dead Yankees without moving out of my tracks. Some of them aren't buried for five days, and some weren't ever buried at all, I don't believe. The battlefield was a horrible sight. To hear the wounded and dying crying and calling for water and for someone to take them away, we laid right in amongst the dead and remained in the field that night. It was the dreadfulest night I ever spent. All the fighting in what would become known as the Seven Days Battles ended in horrible losses on both sides. 20,000 dead, wounded, and missing for the South, 10,000 killed and wounded for the North. 
Though Lee had lost nearly a quarter of his army, McClellan had fallen back. But despite the massive army that the Union had gathered in Virginia, despite the great expectations that accompanied McClellan, the Confederate capital remained safe. Robert E. Lee and his fellow Confederate officers, for their part, might be relieved, but they could not be pleased with the performance, especially at Malvern Hill. As many had been killed and wounded in the seven days as in all the battles of the West to that point, including at Shiloh. I don't think this is understood. I don't think people know, as Dave Ruth said, how horrific and how important the battles around here were. McClellan's army would fight again was the Confederates' great concern. Lincoln watched this, watched all the events on the peninsula before, and presented the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet, telling them that he had already resolved upon this step. But Secretary of State William Seward persuaded him to wait until the proclamation could be issued after a Union victory so that it did not seem, as Seward said, as our last shriek as we retreat. The victory eventually came on September 17th, but here's the important thing. It was events of the seven days. It was the events on the peninsula. It was the events around Richmond in the spring of 62 that led Abraham Lincoln to decide upon emancipation as the course of the war. It's here. That is ours. So what lessons might we draw from this story? First, the battles that ranged around us exactly 150 years ago mattered enormously more than most Americans, or most Richmonders for that matter, understand. As we've seen, the entire course of the war unfolded from what happened here. Lee from here would become the great Confederate general. McClellan from here would fade. Richmond, the focus of the war from the outset, would find some of the pressure on it removed as Lee pulled his army and the pursuing U.S. Army away from the Confederate capital. The battles at Second Manassas and Antietam and Gettysburg would be a blessing of sorts to Richmond by moving the army away. But the trains that came back would be filled with the shattered young men who would fill Chimborazo Hospital and would fill the fancy stores on Main Street and would fill the tents pat pitched all around our city and would fill the homes and churches and schools. And when the war returned in 1864, it would arrive from a different direction, under different leadership, and with a different strategy. The main consequence of the Seven Days, I think, is that they redefined the role of slavery in the war. As we've seen, the U.S. did not go into war with any idea that it could or should end slavery where it stood. But the experiences of the U.S. Army in the Peninsula in the months leading to the battles proved to many people in the North that destroying slavery was a precondition for Union victory. They thought about the fortifications that their sons had died in front of. They thought about all the illness that ravaged the Union camps as men were out in the hot Virginia sun in the Virginia swamps digging fortifications while the rebels 
were behind fortifications that their slaves had built. The fortifications that in many ways defeated the United States Army had been built by forced labor. But at the same time, and it's this tension between the two things, the United States Army glimpsed the longing, determination, and desperate struggle of enslaved people to make themselves free. Edmund Ruffin fires the first shot at Fort Sumter, his plantation on the peninsula. He admits that they could never have imagined the slaves just disappearing as they did. No one foresaw this. They thought they had been bound by ties of love. But within hours, the black people put their own families ahead of their imagined families. And not only did the enslaved people risk their lives to escape, they risked their lives again and again as spies and guides. Many of the time you see in the reports we'll talk about here in a minute, it's black people who tell the Union soldiers where they might be able to ford that creek, which, which of the two roads to take. As we've seen, they even tell them about the plans for the CSS Virginia. The U.S. would not be able to defeat the Confederacy, many in the North decided, if they did not make emancipation a part of their cause. So ironically, if Robert E. Lee had lost Richmond, the war might well have ended without the end of slavery. No matter the lessons the Union learned about the longing for black freedom and about the value of black allies, if the North had been able to take this city in the spring of 1862 with slavery intact, all indications are that it would have done so. Slavery might have ended gradually or with compensation, but surely would not have ended as it would only three years later, as it ended nowhere else in the Western Hemisphere, immediately without compensation for slaveholders. And could they have imagined that there would come a time when slavery would have ended and within years the men who had been in slavery would be office holders and people would be citizens and this very city would see leading figures in the government, men who had been in slavery not long ago. If we might be able to show what's on the computer, and we might. I'm tempted to walk over there. This is a new project that we've made at UR, at our digital scholarship lab, and it's called Visualizing Emancipation. Uh, there was a nice article about it uh, last week. And all the blue dots are everywhere we have a record of the United States Army from in the official records of the War of the Rebellion. So I know I've got some Civil War buffs, shall we call ourselves in here, and you can imagine what it means for us to have plotted every single time that Union position is noted in the official records of the War of the Rebellion. That's what the blue, and this is a movie, it plays. What are the red dots? Those are the places where we found evidence in the OR, the official records, and in the newspapers, and in diaries and letters of times when, when African-Americans are interacting with the United States Army. It's been a big debate among historical circles. Who ended slavery? You may remember the Ken Burns series and Barbara Fields on there saying that slaves freed themselves. But one of the things that we see is that it did take the bravery and risking their lives on their part. But if they had gone to a Union army 
that turned them back, it would have made all the difference. Ironically, the men who were here on the peninsula tended to be from New England. And so the first white northerners that many black southerners are confronting are people who are friendlier to them than they would often confront. You don't really want them to run into people from the upper Midwest, uh, or the worst, the southern Midwest. Uh, and each of these uh, stories, and this is all you, you can, uh, you know, when you go back home, after you visited all the battlefields, uh, you, you can look at this, and, it, it, and what you can see is as the Union Army is swirling around, wherever the Union Army goes in large numbers, enslaved people are going to them. But there's another side to this. You can see every one of these red dots has a story that you can read. And you'll see that not always was the story as heartening as it was here in Virginia. There in the Louisiana, up the Mississippi River, there in Middle Tennessee, there along the, the coast of South Carolina, way up in Missouri, out in Texas. We see horrifying stories of, imagine you're a 21-year-old enslaved mother, you have two or three children, and your husband's gone. What calculation do you make? Do you take a chance that maybe you have an opportunity for your children not to grow up in the same slavery that you have? And you hear that the Union camp is two miles away. And you know that you will be a fugitive slave if you are caught. You are running away. And when you get there, who knows what kind of physical abuse you might get? Who knows what kind of conditions you might find? And if you look at this carefully, some of the new scholarship is finding the horrific death rate among escaped slaves. All of you have seen pictures on television of the refugee camps in the Middle East or in Africa. That's what you need to picture here. These are refugee camps with thousands and thousands of people, no sanitation, no supply of food, maybe no water, and smallpox and cholera and diphtheria rip through these camps. So it's not merely can you escape the Confederates to make it to the Yankees. It's what are you going to find when you get there, and can you survive the first days of freedom? You may have seen lately that we've revised the number of people lost in the Civil War from 620,000 up to 750,000. But that's not taking into account the people who risked everything at a chance for freedom and found themselves in these camps where their lives and the lives of their children were snuffed out. Now, we're always eager to finding turning points. I was amused to see that Gary will be talking about that next week. And I guess what I'm going to say right now is that I think we should always be suspicious of that phrase of a turning point. We're always eager to hurry the story along, to declare it over with, that whatever event happens now, that was always in the cards. And one of my favorite quotes is from one of the historians with the National Park Service, Michael Gorman. And I'd taken some of them, a class of high school teachers that I teach from all over the United States. And I will welcome them again next week. And I take them to see the sites in Richmond all the way from the colonial period up to the present. And we were at Drury's Bluff. Michael Gorman says, you know, 
people want to act as if everything that happens before Gettysburg is irrelevant and everything that happens after it is inevitable. Isn't that a great line? I think you've seen right now that the seven days are hardly irrelevant. And even though it is the time that's sort of the downfall of McClellan, and even though it's the time, it's the rise of Robert E. Lee, and even though it is the time that leads Abraham Lincoln in the quiet of his bedroom there in the dark to write out something that nobody could have imagined just a few months earlier, the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. Even with all that, we need to remember that nothing in the Civil War was inevitable. Not in 1862, not in 1863, and not even in 1864. In many ways, the divisions of the North that I told you about at the beginning are what the White South is planning to play on. They think that, of all people, George McClellan can win the presidency in 1864. And a remarkable fact, Abraham Lincoln wins exactly the same percentage of the vote in 1864 as he had in 1860. Even with a million soldiers voting in the field for the first time, even with new areas like West Virginia added to the Union, even with a firm control of the patronage, 45% of white northern men refused to vote for Abraham Lincoln after Atlanta, after the Valley, after the Seven Days, after Gettysburg, after the Gettysburg Address. So nothing is inevitable. It's all in the air, all the time. And it was not inevitable that the same place, so close to where we live, that saw the beginning of slavery in British North America would, as it turned out, also be the place where it began to end. Wars have a direction only in retrospect. If we are to understand them, we have to submit ourselves to the profound uncertainty and open ourselves to the heartbreak and try to recover some of the awe that people at the time felt. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you. My understanding is that the questions are all kind, generous, and easy. Uh, so who would like to go with, go first? I'm ready. Someone wants to go first? Oh. There we go. Now behind you. There we go. Hi. Uh, I'm looking at some of these emancipation events, and there seem to be some that are right around Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and maybe that's where the cursor is. Is that Bermuda? Yeah. Uh, can you explain nope. some of these? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> because I think, uh, okay. So, uh, the, the, as you can see, all these stories. And one of the things that we've done, so we sat down. I need to get behind the microphone. It's not my nature to stand still. <laughs> but, um, so what we've done is gone through, if the United States 
if the record mentions it, we put it there. Mm -hmm. One of the cool things about this, you can see up at the top it says share your events. You see that mm -hmm. at the top? Uh, this is going to be crowdsourced and that people can contribute to this. And because you might see that we've used the, the Richmond Dispatch, <laughs> uh, one reason there's so many around here, all the runaway slave ads. But once people start using all the Nashville paper and the Memphis paper and all this, uh, right now there's about 3,800 emancipation events. Who knows how many there can be. And part of it's going to be kind of like Wikipedia. Yeah. You'll write in and say, what the heck are they doing in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, not to mention Bermuda? <laughs> I've been just been afraid to look at that one to see what that might mean. But so what it is is that rather than knowing something and then making a map of it, we're saying let's put all the data in and see what story it tells us. Yeah. So this is built by uh, quite a few of the undergraduates that you are who sat down there with all of these very long lists and do all that. So that's the sort of thing that, unlike a regular book, you kind of have to take it or leave it. Here you can explore for yourself. I was very skeptical when you were talking about this kind of thing 20 years ago, but boy, it sure has come to pass. Thank you very much. I thought you said you were very skeptical 20 minutes ago that I was really going to be in trouble. Thanks very much. What else we got? I saw other hands. Yes. You spoke of uh, the uh, <clears throat> just, re yeah. refugee camps, the runaways, yeah. when the uh, uh, Union Army evacuated the peninsula. Where did those, the survivors of those camps go? Yeah, they, today's Hampton. You know, the peninsula is unusual in that it became really, uh, partly because it had Fortress Monroe and you had all, the, this became a good place to run away. Uh, so the camps would have been far more out west, you know, where there's not really the kind of infrastructure of a major fort and all the supply ships that can come and so forth. Down in South Carolina, uh, you know, the 40 acres and a mule, all that, that begins there because the white people basically just leave the sea islands, just abandon all those golf courses. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it, it, the, the enslaved people then are not in camps but are actually hoping to raise their own food on these plantations. But then the, the white northerners come in and force it back into production to so, show that freed slaves can also produce um, cotton. So everywhere you see on this map, there's a different kind of storage. But the refugee camps tend to be uh, in the west, where the armies are not for very long. And you know, Sherman, and you can see coming down to the coast of Georgia, says he has 10,000 people behind him. And many of them drown in swamps and creeks. There's actually the Georgia Historical Society has put up a, a monument to a place uh, where the, in some of the slave people drown. So one of the things that we're discovering uh, in, through visualizing emancipation. And my colleague Scott Nesbitt, who actually doesn't have to run a university and so can actually get to explore all this history, uh, for which I really resent him, uh, tells me <laughs> that there's a whole, uh, that basically everywhere you see a concentration of uh, emancipated people, there's a different story. So that's kind of a long answer that I hope that you will accept as satisfactory. What else we got? Yes, right there. Now that the uh, Civil War in Virginia has moved to Charlottesville, are we going to be able to keep you here in Richmond? <laughs> I did believe I heard the cannonading one evening. <laughs> I think about that. Uh, it's a shame. It's really just. It's too bad. I'd say the people that I hear from Charlottesville are trying to keep that great institution going. 
and they're working to, uh, to fulfill the great vision that Jefferson had for it. So I hope they'll be able to, to put things back together. That's, that's all I can really tell you about that. Uh, I don't have a map of that. Or, but yeah, let's hear it for the University of Virginia. <laughs> When I went to junior high school in Somerville, Massachusetts, right across the street there was a Cameron Street. If you went down Cameron Street, you came to Glendale, Marvin Hill, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. So I went home and asked my mother, and she said, oh, well, that's where your great-grandfather trained in the 6th Massachusetts Cavalry. Wow. But there was interesting, with all the names, there was not McClellan. <laughs> <laughs> but it was mostly the Seven Days Battles. But you know, that's a great story. Uh, the, uh, the irony is that um, I think people know McClellan was much beloved and uh, that it's not an accident the Democrats put him up for president in 64. It's strange to think that if Sherman had not taken Atlanta, I mean, some of you have maybe heard me speak about this and so I apologize, but maybe you weren't paying attention the first time. Uh, <laughs> Lincoln does not think he's going to be renominated in, 18, in August of 64 renominated in August, right? And so McClellan, even though now, I mean, Ken Burns beats up on him and all this sort of stuff, you know, uh, and because, you know, the, the irony is Ken Burns beats up on him because Ken Burns is sort of, you know, the war brought freedom and so forth. Ironically, if McClellan had done what he's supposed to and had ended the war, we would not be celebrating him. We might have him on our money, <laughs> uh, but we would not do that. So it's interesting how, the, how it's remembered in the North. Um, and, you know, the story that they would have told of the seven days, I think one reason we don't remember it is that it doesn't really, doesn't seem the property of either the North or the South. You know, Malvern Hill is a great victory, but it was on the way to a repositioning, as McClellan called it. Thank you. For, that's an interesting story. What else we got? You can't tell me I didn't stir up more <laughs> anger and frustration than that. Yes, here we go. I'm sitting next to Alexander McClellan, Kilpatrick. <laughs> and there were good Kilpatricks in both the North and the South, as witness Kilpatrick's raid uh, out in Goochland. Back in the old country, they were on the same side. McClellan's and Kilpatrick. I see. In Scotland. So I can tell that you don't really want us to hand you the microphone and talk about this, do you? I can tell. <laughs> it raised an interesting issue, though. Um, watch how I get you out of this. Um, <laughs> the Irish on both sides, you know, and that's another thing, too. They had wondered, people are surprised to know that you know, maybe a quarter of the population of Richmond at the time of the Civil War was Irish and German. And uh, that even though, the, and people wondered, uh, would the Irish actually be in support of the Confederacy? But in the North and the South, we find that the ethnic groups fought roughly in proportional to, to their presence in the population. So the Kilpatricks and McClellans and uh, every variety of, of German, uh, it's amazing how fully and um, um, passionately these brand-new Americans and brand-new Confederates uh, rallied to their cause. It's interesting how those kinds of uh, identities emerge. So how was that, young man? Was that helpful? Okay, thanks very much. What else we got? 
Yes. Did the results of the seven days battles result in any uh, surge in enlistment or drop in enlistment in the north or in the south? You know, I think that, you know, that the, the north, no, I don't believe so. Uh, the north also has to resort to a draft as well. And uh, this is embarrassing to both sides because so much of the rhetoric, you know, is either defend your homeland or defend your hearth. And, but, and it's actually useful for us to remember. I, I find that the glorification of the past is actually saltifying for the present and for the future. If we imagine that people were once better than we are, it's like, why don't we just give up, you know? And so I read these, these quotes partly because it's useful for us to remember that great things are always accomplished in the face of obstacles and doubters and naysayers. And, and it's also helpful for us to remember people were saying worse things about Abraham Lincoln than anybody has said, even on Fox News, about President Obama. <laughs> no, really. Or that they say on MSNBC about George Bush. That's not a partisan statement. But we imagine that we live in like the worst time all of the, we used to be driven by patriotism and solidarity. And no, we didn't. We were always at each other's throats, you know. And that when people had to rally, they did. But what I find is that uh, there was a steady, I mean, by this time, the South is almost fully mobilized. Here's something to remember. At the time of secession, only a year before this, here in Richmond, when they showed up to vote on secession, 80 of the delegates had been for the Union. A year later, only 1,000 men in present-day Virginia ever fought for the United States. What does that say about us, that our identities can switch that rapidly, right? So in the North, I think that people looked at this and they said, well, you know, it's not that McClellan didn't have enough men, it's that he didn't know how to use them, right? So we do find over the course of the war, and everybody knows, I think by July of 63, uh, you know, the, the draft riots, almost the same time they're riding in the streets of our city over bread, they're riding in the streets of New York over the draft. The great enemy on both sides was perceived in equality, in equity. So here in the South, the charge was that if you own 20 slaves, you were exempted, and we can see why. Because if they see the slave population dissolve, then the Confederacy loses and it's four million people working uh, behind the lines and building the fortifications. Uh, they know they've lost everything. But if you're a non-slaveholder, which three-fourths of white Southerners were, and you see that, that erodes your confidence more than anything. If you find that your rich neighbor will not allow his enslaved men to be taken to dig the fortifications to protect your very city, you say, well, honey, I think I'll just stay home too. And in the North, it's the same thing. If after Gettysburg, you think that the Irish are being singled out and made cannon fodder, then you riot in the streets and, and quit doing that. So I think in the same way that the, uh, the South gets to full bore, uh, mobilization as quickly as it can. And despite the draft, what's remarkable is the percentage of men who enlist of their own accord, right? Uh, it's a quarter of, of all military-age men in the South are killed in the war, numbers that are like World War I in Europe. So it's kind of a long kind of riff on your, on your answer. But I think at the time, people see that it's going to be a long war. But it's not for lack of men, I think, that the North feels that way. It's a good question. Right here at the front. Oh, one final. Oh, now the pressure. 
Okay. No pressure. In April of 61, Virginia had two votes for secession. The first one, they did not vote to secede. One week later, they voted to secede. In there. Lincoln called up troops for the state of Virginia. I never have seen much written on the philosophy on if Lincoln had given Virginia an out and said, okay, for the time being, you don't have to supply the troops. Right. Would there have been a war? That's a great question, and I'm, I'm, I'm not ignoring you by, I'm not just checking my email. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> just letting you know. But what I want you to, to do, after you've done uh, visiting the battlefields, uh, all of them, and uh, after you've looked at uh, our website uh, for emancipation, I want you to look at this one, which is, we just precisely to answer that question, we went and digitized all 3,000 pages of the Virginia secession debates. And one of the things that you can do there is, you know, I'll just say union and search it. And <laughs> it's all right. What it does is it, it, it found that 1,592 times that they talk about union. And one of the things that it does too is that it plots the, uh, if they had downloaded this <laughs> thing on the computer that's not my own, uh, what it does is it shows all the votes over time. What you see is that South Carolina comes up here and they're lobbying the, these delegates who are for the Union. And they're going to Abraham Lincoln and they're saying, please don't secede. He says, you guys are like a caught gun. You're just sitting there. All it would take would be uh, an event that would trigger this. He says, if you disperse, then Virginia's not going to do this. So South Carolina says, Virginia is not going to act until it's absolutely forced to. And it's true. They're, they have bonfires in the streets of Richmond of young men who are saying, Granny, come on, secede. Let's be men. And so Virginia looks at this, and they vote over and over again to, to not before that even, to stay in the Union. Even the firing on Fort Sumter, which is done in many ways to force Virginia to act, doesn't do it. It's when Lincoln calls out the troops. And the, by that time, uh, Virginians had decided that they hated South Carolina for putting them in this position, but that South Carolina, like Virginia did, had the right to leave if they wanted to. So the vote that had been 80-something to 40-something in favor turned into 80-something, 40-something, in favor of the Union turned into two secession. A delegation from the convention had gone up to Lincoln and said, please, sir, just don't do anything. We think we can hold it together. But when he, they were talking, the boat to resupply Fort Sumter had already gone, gone down. So Lincoln knew that. He didn't tell them that, of course. He did not think that would necessarily start the war. So Lincoln is trying to um, get out of this, too. His great miscalculation is thinking that all these votes for the Constitutional Union Party, that all these votes for union, that all the, the mother of presidents, the statue of George Washington that had just been put up two years earlier in Capitol Square, that all that would evaporate into a loyalty to a nation that was only weeks old. And that is the great mystery at the heart of the war, the two great mysteries. One, 
how did the war evolve? And I, I think it, it, it almost metastasizes. It's not just like a line, it's not a billiard ball. It's this process that you really have to see. It takes directions people don't anticipate. And the other great mystery is how did slavery come to an end out of this war that had not begun to end it? And I think the story of the seven days is an important clue in that. It's not that the people in the North just changed their minds. They're watching to see what happens on the battlefield at the very places the National Park Service has preserved for us and, and, and displays for us. And they see right there on that ground with the very fortifications that you can see today lie the secret of why slavery came to an end in the American Civil War. Thank you so much, everybody.